This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. For this, our third week of a multi-episode series looking at the work of native plant organizations and gardeners on the ground and around the country, we're joined by two landscape architects, mothers, and gardeners whose belief in good design and sustainably sourced plants, tools, and advice propelled them to co-found an endeavor known as Plant Me a Rainbow. Meg Herndon and Sandra Nam Chaffee join us today from their respective places in New Hampshire and New York. Welcome, Meg and Sandra. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you for having us. So I want to get started. I've introduced you briefly, but I want to get started with each of you giving me a little background on where you are sitting speaking with us today and what you do in your day-to-day life, both personally and professionally, that is plant-related. I want to start with you, Meg. Tell us a little bit about your plant life. Thank you for asking and for listening. I am sitting in an old 1780s farmhouse on an old farmstead in the seacoast region of New Hampshire. And here I work with plants from seed all the way through maturity. And part of the process of that is involves design. So I grow annuals and perennials to organic standards, starting with the seeds in my old stone basement and then germinate them out either in the field or in the forest or in the greenhouse. It's a little bit more simple with the annuals, but that's how it works with the perennials. And I grow the annuals for the cutting gardens that we provide through Plant Me a Rainbow. And I grow the perennials for my own experimentation in a field pasture below the barn near the house. In addition to that, We source sustainably grown perennials from local growers and we import them here and mix them according to our garden design and in trays. And so we have those plants here that we keep. And Sandra and I have designed a garden around the house that encompasses the barn area and the greenhouse and the planting shed area. And so I use that garden as a sort of demonstration garden for our part sun kit and our full sun kit. So it's a little bit of a laboratory, a lot of production, and then really working with these perennials from other growers that we're really familiar with um, right by the house. Great. So let's move to you, Sandra, to tell us a little bit about where you are currently and what your day-to-day life with plants looks like. And I, I will mention to listeners that we're starting to hear references already in Meg's story to the the work of Plant Me a Rainbow. And we're going to get into that in much greater detail as the conversation continues. But let's hear a little bit from you, Sandra, about where you are and what your plant life looks like every day. I currently live in Scarsdale, New York, and it's a suburb of New York City. And I am, I think, what I would call a homesteader or a suburban homesteader trying to figure out how one practices gardening and landscape through the lens of a parent. My 
private home gardening practice really involves my whole family. And even though I might be a la licensed landscape architect and you know we worked on all these projects all over the world in my former um, job, it really is humbling to work with my own mm -hmm. piece of land. You know, it's suddenly you're not taking care of this other space or this other landscape that um, has a different set of eyes and hands on it, but rather it's my own home for my own family. And so the, it's become a place to practice in a very different capacity and through a different lens. And also actually a little bit meditative. I've got two young children at home and on the weekends, I'll go outside and start weeding. <laughs> you know, living in the suburbs, there are quite a few invasives and of course they're on everybody's property. And so I've been dealing with mugwort and bishop's weed, which becomes this sort of methodic act of mindfulness that's been teaching me a lot about the environment, pulling out the bad, but in the process kind of clearing my mind. And related to this practice, I'm also trying to figure out how to create a body of research or educational tools to then be able to speak to other homeowners and even younger homeowners or millennials, let's just say, it's a very different conversation to be had when you're talking to people who are busy and don't have the time to you know, go get their graduate degree in landscape architecture to figure out how to start tackling their home landscape and then also involve their children and get them to realize that their backyard is and should be a place to enjoy and not just to have a, a, a clean lawn or a mown lawn. So that's my hope is to figure out a, a research or educational set of tools to talk about what we're doing with Plant Me a Rainbow. I would love to hear the kind of origin story of how you came together and developed the idea for Plant Me a Rainbow and a little bit of history on that front before I maybe go back to some of your earliest history and what made you plant people yourselves individually. Um, Sandra and I met in graduate school at Virginia Tech outside of Washington, D.C. That was a formative experience of design and it, it was new and our cohort really banded together and we weren't as good of friends in school as we became afterwards. Sandra got had an amazing opportunity right out of school and she went down to Charlottesville, Virginia and I was working at a small firm in Washington DC and we shared experiences of of working in a design office and then also we became moms within six weeks of each other. And so we had that. San, I, I used to call Sandra as this great expert because she was six weeks ahead of me <laughs> with it. And I'm just like in panic, what do I do? I had twins and she had one baby. And But it was just, we were working. We were figuring out what it looks like to be a mom. It was really stressful. Um, we knew we could do this design work together at, through school, and we just sort of bonded over this shared maternal experience. And then I got a job at a larger firm with projects similar to what Sandra was working on. And so we had that sort of level of maybe travel or, or deadline-driven work or long hours. And Sandra had her second child, I remember going down there with soup and just 
being like, you, you can do it. Just put one foot in front of the other. You can do it. It will be fine. But it was sort of this crucible of experience that we really bonded over. So I ended my career or, or I ended my job in the city about a year before Sandra ended hers. And so we talked about that as well, leaving those offices that we had worked really hard to get into and then that we really, in, in these jobs that we really enjoyed and found great satisfaction in. So we've been together for, it's been over 10 years really that we've been friends. And so Sandra, take it from there in terms of, of your experience and how out of this crucible of graduate school and early work and early parenthood, you you came up with the idea to start Plant Me a Rainbow? So I think when I was looking to leave my job, I hit a plateau in my career. And I believe Meg had also hit a similar plateau. We were working on big projects, doing amazing design work, and yet trying to be parents at the same time. And so we would also then see a lot of our, I would say, mentors, our female mentors, leave the office as well. Um, and of course, you know, when you're working and you, you have your, you know, your peers, your, the people that you look up to leave, you're like, Where, why, where are you going? And it's sort of this sad, like open space of now, what do I do? How do I figure this out? Where do I go next? And so, you know, one step forward and I decided to leave my job and, focus on being at home. And then when I did, that's when Meg and I kind of forged together over the phone quite often. We'd again, kind of band together about ideas. Meg was uh, growing perennials at the time and learning the practice, really getting back into that whole uh, process of understanding how to grow plants from seed. And I was also figuring out how do I kind of keep my design lens uh, still working and letting that engine keep purring a little bit because I, I have this joy to draw and to think about the landscape through the lens of art. And um, so I was toying with some idea and then Meg was doing her work. And then I think we just sort of came together on this idea of creating these gardens that would be available to people, to people at home. Um, whereas in our former uh, jobs, we would be working on big private commissions. And that's a big endeavor. And so we felt like that scale of work was really inaccessible to those just all around us, other families, other people who had homes and wanted to beautify them. But you just don't have the kind of expense to hire a big shop to come and do the work for you. A home is a very special place. And as we both have come to learn how to kind of nurture it and literally build it and then feed the children in it. It's a labor of love that only you can do. And so it's hard to then expect somebody else to come in and kind of do all that work for you. Um, so we're trying to find this medium to bridge our, our work that we're so used to doing, but making it humble and yet fun and, and just kind of demystify the whole process. Yeah. Your stories are so resonant with a lot of threads at play in our 
sort of collective consciousness as a culture, I think, right now, and and probably has been for, for many years. I, I think some of the struggles and challenges you describe were the same ones my mother had, the same ones I had as a young mother. The, these are age-old questions, and uh, there are, thankfully, a million different ways to answer these questions well. So tell us about the coming together of the mission behind Plant Me a Rainbow, because it is really intriguing to me in terms of what you have created and how many questions and longings and struggles it is answering for home gardeners in just your situations. Maybe we'll start again with you, Meg, to talk about, uh, you know, some of the, the baseline elements of the business and what these elements were trying to address for the people that would become your clients, your your audience. Okay. Well, there are a lot of facets to it, I think. But one of the major ones is that we want to provide sustainably grown or organically grown plants. We also want to provide cutting-edge design. And we want to demystify the process of gardening for people who may not yet be gardeners. Maybe they're new homeowners. Maybe they want to be gardeners, but they don't know where to start. Maybe they have started and have retreated and thrown <laughs> up their hands in frustration and said, I can't do this. I have, I, I, this is too expensive to keep reiterating. We want to be a place where people can come for good, solid advice and good, solid, functional, beautiful gardens that are healthy for the family and for the environment. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this week we're speaking with landscape architects and gardener plantswomen Sandra Nam Chaffee and Meg Herndon, sharing with us their model for growing interesting ornamental home gardens at Plant Me a Rainbow. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey now, what we contribute how we contribute, what we can serve, and why. This is a question I just keep coming back to. And that's what we take on this month in our Garden Life Love Letter audio bonus. If you're a donor of $10 every month or more than $100 a year, contributing to the sustainability of our work here at Cultivating Place, then your monthly Garden Life Love Letter is in your email inbox today. In it, Sandra Namchiaffi and Meg Herndon dive just a little deeper on the values they hold dear and that they conserve. Sandra sharing as a Korean-American woman striving to conserve her cultural heritage, and Meg poignantly sharing her experience of gardening as a crucible as an important bipartisan bridge to common ground, fostering dialogue across all kinds of differences. These two women embody thoughtful and intelligent design, working to mind the gaps in our world today, starting from right where they are with what they love, their own valuable garden lives. 
all Cultivating Place donors at the $10 a month or more recurring donation are automatically signed up for the monthly Garden Life Love Letter. I'm looking forward to sending you yours. Sign up to be a contributor by going to the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page on cultivatingplace.com. And thank you to everyone who supports. In very real and tangible ways, you help to cultivate and grow this space of thoughtful and expansive conversation and cultural paradigm shifting. Now, back to our conversation with Sandra Nam Chiaffi and Meg Herndon, who are actively planting rainbows. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back now with the founders of Plant Me a Rainbow, based in the U.S. Northeast. Before the break, co-founder Meg Herndon was describing for us Plant Me a Rainbow's hope that their work is a source of support, of solid advice, and resources to help home gardeners who are longing for solid, good, functional, and beautiful gardens that are also healthy for the family and for the environment. As we come back, Sandra describes the goals of Plant Me a Rainbow through a vivid analogy with being a first-time parent. And then we go on to discuss a concept Sandra and Meg call the Garden Pyramid. I'll give, a, I guess, an analogy or an example. It's similar to when you become a first-time mom and you just don't know where to go or what to do, and you especially don't know what to expect until you're thrown into it and you're pretty much like sobbing and or running frantic going, how do I just feed my child? And so I think in this weirdly innate sense, it's a similar approach. And, you know, when you get that one hand from your friend or even from another mom who you don't, and you just say, here, this is just a little some, some tip something you can do, or this is the kind of, I don't know, little gear that you can get to help you or a baby carrier. It's just some advice to get you going. And I think that's a good analogy to describe why we're doing this or the mission is that it's this, it's this innate quality. I think both Meg and I were trying to help because it really was a struggle for us to get through design school. It might seem oh, landscape architecture, you know, you're studying the environment and how to design, but it's it's kind of like a blood, sweat and tears endeavor. And you're asking yourself the whole time, am I designing? Uh, how do I know if I'm designing? Or did I just design something? It's a very, it's a strange question. It might seem to others, but it's a, it's a struggle that you go, what am I doing that is actually specific or a tool that I'm creating or or a roadmap that I'm creating to help actually illuminate a space. And so that quality about what we learned in school and what we did for many years working on the job is something that we're trying to help relay to others who would not normally go down this path. Right, right. So let's get into the actual elements of the business. You focus on providing pre-designed gardens complete with plants for your clients. At this point, there are two primary pre-designed gardens that 
One is for full sun and one is for part shade. They are based on this idea, a framework that you call the garden pyramid. They are perennial and annual ornamental gardens, and they are designed with biodiversity, safety, and native ecology in mind. They are based, from what I can tell, on your physical locations. But even if you're someone like me from California, just going through the website and looking at the information and the way you have put this together, there is a lot to learn from your uh, your concepts that are apparent throughout all of these pieces. So let's start with you, Sandra, describing the garden pyramid concept, and then we'll move to Meg to talk a little bit more about the specific plants and the growing techniques and methodologies. The garden pyramid is a very unique concept that we created, but it's not uncommon in the world of perfumery, which is an industry that I worked in for several years after college and before going into landscape architecture. And to describe a fragrance pyramid first, or a perfume pyramid, when you spray a a wonderful cologne or a perfume, there is this structure that the scent is actually based upon and that's the fragrance pyramid so there's a top note a heart note and then a base note and upon first spritz the top note is what you experience first it's the more ephemeral notes for instance the lemons or the citrus notes um, that light grassy note after you mow the lawn then there's a heart note which is really the essence or the story of that fragrance fruits and um, woods or other ambers and whatnot that really just wrap together and describe what the essence of that perfume is all about. Then the base note is the the infrastructure that lifts everything up. It's the the layer that you uh, sense or smell the last at the uh, after say an hour upon spraying the, the the perfume. And those are again maybe even woods or vanillas and musks for instance, that, again, help lift the other more lighter ephemeral notes all together, and they kind of sing together as a harmony. So after working in that field, that this notion of perfumery and the pyramid was sort of stuck with me. And, um, and then when Meg and I were talking together about how we design these garden kits, it was important that we help describe to people its experience and that we're creating a ratio of plants that work together as a whole in harmony, um, very much like a musical score. And you have these top note layers of plants that might be more, maybe they're even just pops of color or they're taller and grassy. Then you have these heart notes, which are all the textures and the colors that bloom together or even syncopated at different times. And then you have this um, ground cover layer or the base note, which are also flowering perennials, but it allows you to um, cover the, the garden with green mulch rather than open space for adding other mulch. So we want it to be very, uh, I guess, maybe alluring and how we described the way our gardens work as a whole system 
And so we borrowed this language from perfumery and coined the garden pyramid for Plant Me a Rainbow. Beautiful. I love it. And I'll ask then Meg to take this analogy that Sandra has just described to us that you were both working with and describe it with the specific plants that you are growing and or having grown by other by other growers so that we we see those as physicalities to this concept of the top note, the heart, and then the base. Okay, so let's start with the top note for the full sun kit. There are um, two species. And I'll say that these plants are um, designed in ratio. So it's, it's um, I think, 8% of the species are top note and 50% of the species are base note. So when Sandra says the syncopation or this ephemerality, these um, top notes, um, well, the calamagrassus, the Carl Forster grass, for example, um, it's also called feather reed grass. It's, it's tall, it's narrow, and it catches the light, it catches the breeze. It's beautiful in the summer, and it's um, particularly beautiful in the fall. There aren't, I think for each kit, there are only, I think there are, are six plants out of 50 that are the calamagrostis. And then the retibita is another one that's really tall, a really spectacular when it blooms. It's yellow and it, it's really fun. But again, it's there are only a few of them and they just pop up. They're intermingled. And then I'll say that the retibita is the prairie coneflower, native perennial to the Midwest and the calamagrostis. I think it um, originated in Germany. And then the heart note, if, if we want to talk about the heart notes, they're designed to provide the seasonal color so that you have a long bloom time from spring through fall. And we provide a graphic on the website of how, of how these work together, what, what the bloom color is. But um, most of these plants, I'm looking and the, it's, they're mostly native to the um, Northeast and we've chosen them um, for their long bloom time and their color and their beauty, but also because they're great host plants for a lot of pollinators, I'm thinking of the Agastache um, and the Monarda and the Aster in particular. Um, these provide a lot of, um, these provide food sources for pollinators and it, it's important to provide those food sources throughout the season. Um, we also, we grow these or we source these perennials from sustainable growers and we have the information for um, whether they're um, sown from seed or whether they're um, um, clones. Most of them are, are seed grown perennials. Um, the stackies is the stackies officinalis humilo. The betony is just um it's an award-winning perennial, and we love it, and we love the color. It's kind of new. It's exciting. It's not native to the to North America, but it's a great neighbor, and it's a great plant, and we love it. So 
that one's in there. Then if we talk, and then, so I'm talking about the top note, the heart note, and the base note. The base note, those plants are selected based on their morphology for covering the ground, like Sandra said, and providing green mulch. This Ruellia humilis, the wild petunia, is a really low-growing um, perennial. It's native to the northeast, and it has these um, purple, low purple flowers, which are really sweet. And then the allium, um, nodding wild onion, it um, colonizes. So you plant you plant a bit of it, and then it'll spread and sort of colonize the ground plane without interfering with um, the heart note and the base notes that come up, that will eventually come up through that. So it's this layered composition, um, and it's a plant community, and it's some people call it matrix planting. It's a system that originated in Europe. Um, um, after the First World War in Germany, a lot of the um, cities were devastated um, by the war and they were looking for an economical way to um, provide beauty and green infrastructure. And they came up with this system of these plant communities and they found that once they get established with this weed suppressing layer that also acts as a moisture retentive layer and eliminates the need for mulching, um, these plant communities, these plants love to grow together and provide structure for each other and are very low maintenance and after they get established. And so we, um, we worked with this system in our firms and on these public projects and we, we love the aesthetics of the system and we love the functionality of the system and the beauty of it. And so we are using it to I'm hoping to introduce homeowners to it. Um, it's a really practical, beautiful thing that can be available on a residential scale. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this week we're speaking with landscape architects and gardeners, Sandra Nam Kioffi and Meg Herndon, sharing with us their model for growing interesting ornamental home gardens at Plant Me a Rainbow. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. Okay, so thinking out loud here, this whole conversation with Meg and Sandra at its heart gets to some deep cultural struggles many people come up against, hurdles as they are manifested in the horticultural world, things like how we balance making a living with making a life of meaning for our places, our families, ourselves, and our world how hard it can sometimes be to hold firm to an ideal of community over competition, of being effective and saving time and resources, becoming quite quickly a thoughtless buying into convenience over pernicious long-term effects to ourselves, to our communities, and our world at large. I am well aware of how hard it can be to see and grasp all the costs involved in every decision we make in the garden, just as in every other aspect of our life. And I keep coming back to this. It is up to us, the gardeners, to talk, to share, to question, to challenge, to try. To not be sold on the idea of a blooming one-gallon plastic pot of flowers in August and July in our big box stores without asking what exactly that took. Is that normal? Should it be? Why? Why not? 
and what are our alternatives? Why are small independent nurseries that supply innovative, interesting plant diversity in small, efficient sizes that grow well? Businesses that support families, the water, the soil, and air health of their communities, to say nothing of the physical health and well-being of their staff, why are they struggling? Is it really more expensive for us? What are the hidden costs of not asking about pesticides, herbicides, growth hormones? Why and what are the alternatives? We can do better. We are far more imaginative, intelligent, creative, innovative, and powerful as gardeners than we give ourselves credit or time for. And together, we make a difference. What are the standards we want for this garden life of all of ours? Now, back to our conversation with Meg Herndon and Sandra Namchiaffi of Plant Me a Rainbow, standard bearers worth learning from. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. When we left our conversation with Sandra Nam Chiaffi and Meg Herndon, the plants women behind Plant Me a Rainbow, they were describing how they developed their concept for pre-designed garden kits with sustainably grown perennials, choreographed in a way that many of us think of as matrix planting. We've talked about this concept many times on the program, with Rick Dark and the Gardens of the Highline in New York City, as well as with Thomas Rayner, co-author of Planting in a Post-Wild World with Claudia West. The concept of matrix planting may have been codified in post-World War II Germany, but it is, of course, biomimetic. It is exactly how Mother Nature often wants to grow, in layers and successions. Other cultures across time and space have used this concept, one example being the indigenous cultures of North America and their three sisters' plantings of corn, squash, and beans. As we come back, Meg and Sandra get into some of the challenges in the horticultural industry right now, several of which they're trying to address in their own work. One of these challenges being thoughtfully, responsibly, and sustainably grown plants and access to them on some very personal levels. Were there frustrations that you both were experiencing as parents, as gardeners, as caring plants women in this world with the idea of going to your nursery and not being able to find neonicotinoid-free interesting perennials outside of what Lowe's or Home Depot determined we should grow this year? Yes, absolutely. And not even as homeowners, but even as landscape architects, where we have so many resources available to us, to wholesale growers, um, it's very difficult to find information about how plants are grown. And Also, a lot of people don't realize that it's even a question. I didn't until I started thinking about it. And I never would have thought about it if I hadn't been diagnosed with what they call unexplained infertility and then done some research about where this could have come from and how 
herbicides and pesticides are implicated in um, fertility issues. And um, I, I just remember um, also when I was becoming a grower, being surprised to see like the name of an ag chemical corporation on the as a plug grower. So plugs are the way the horticulture industry works now. Um, plugs are provided from really large growers who are off, who some of whom are the same as the ag chemical company um, to wholesale growers. And then the wholesale grower will take this like maybe one by one inch little plug and grow it on either into a um, like a five by two inch root ball plant and then sell it to another grower to grow on into a one gallon container to then either sell wholesale or retail. But um, the point is these plants start out as babies and, and they're grown by really large companies. And then they just sort of travel, travel through a number of different um, growers until they've reached their final destination on a garden center shelf. And the, the garden center orders plants from all over the place. Oh, one, usually one gallon, I'm talking about one gallon perennials. And um, if you were to go into a garden center and, and ask the, the buyer um, what, how, how the plants were grown, it, it's likely that the buyer would not have an answer for you as far as, because he wouldn't be able to trace the plant right. all the way back. Right. So they might have one answer of where it last came from, but that doesn't even begin to tell the whole story, let alone what the seed was from which it right. started originally. Yeah. Right. And because it's such a large scale at the very beginning, in the horticulture industry, the trend is now that the larger companies are acquiring the smaller growers and the smaller growers, independent growers, are finding it difficult to continue growing um, unique plants uh, just because it's very difficult to compete with the price um, and then also to grow in this sustainable manner is, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's more expensive, but it, there are it's just not easy for independent growers to continue with these larger companies as competition. Right, right. And, you know, I will just say that it might seem more expensive to buy an individual plant from an independent grower in terms of what you pay out of pocket for that one thing at that one moment. But the embodied costs in a plant at a big not independent nursery cannot be overstated and you've already touched on several of them so I'm not going to I'm not going to wallow in there but it it deserves <laughs> it deserves saying so describe and maybe we'll move to Sandra for this or either one of you you are you have developed these two kits they come with this pre-selection of really interesting perennials. You can add annuals to them. When someone buys a kit from you, um, they get a whole host of information and tools, including a consultation with you guys about exposure and 
land preparation and siting and whatever else they might need help with. There's so much information on the website that even if you go look at the website and you're not in a place that makes sense to get a kit and or you don't want to buy a kit, that's fine. You will learn a lot just going to the website, looking at the plant selection, looking at how it's put together, and uh, thinking about the concepts that under underlie it. Sandra, describe for us outside of the growing, like, what happens when someone does get a kit? Say I was to order a kit. What what is what comes in the mail? How does this work? Maybe give us an anecdote of how it's worked with one or two clients successfully. Essentially, we advise and first and foremost conduct the consultation because we want to talk and get to know our client on a friendly basis and understand their needs. That's really important to us, first and foremost. And then we sort of prepare them for the process because this is not about jumping in and suddenly you receive a bunch of plants and you're expected to go plant. We want this to be a thoughtful process so they understand what do they need to do to prepare. Um, So then we'll deploy a welcome box or a welcome kit full of professional grade tools. You get this fun, pretty awesome watering wand and then you get organic plant food and other amendments that help you prepare. And then after you've cited your site or cited your garden bed, then you can also uh, solarize and kill all the seed weeds out of that um, spot and wait for three weeks. Um, We want this again, a prepared process. Um, That's essentially the idea is what we would do to start with somebody. In one particular instance, um, we did the consultation and then I did a site visit. Actually, it was a local customer and they just needed a little bit more help. They needed a little bit more site demo work and needed some tree assessments. And so they, you know, we we gave them some recommendations on who to talk to about getting a tree assessed or we talked to them about who to talk to for landscape contracting work and actually doing some site demo and taking out some shrubs that were unhealthy and actually unsightly in the front of their house. So we, we walked them through their process and gave them actually a very quick sketch to figure out what to do and how to talk to these folks when the time came so that then they could then prepare themselves for the actual receipt of the plants. And then they were ready to actually have a lot of fun. And they said the planting part was the easiest part. It was the most fun. And they got their daughter involved. And, you know, the daughter now is invested in this garden. So it's a process that we want to engage people and give them ample preparation and protection, really, of what to expect so that they can trust us and really know that we're there to help them. That's really important for us is that people know that we're just here to help. Um, So that's the process. And that... That is really essential because, um, you know, a garden coach kind of, which is what it sounds like you are, is sometimes just the handholding we need to to get us deeper into what we're trying to do. And even if you did learn as a child to garden or a love of gardening, um, if you're living in a new place, if you're living with a new plant palette, if you're in a completely unfamiliar environment, uh, this this is really useful information and help. So when you when you send out a box and you you send out so I, I understand that um, each kit comes with a hundred 
perennials, and then you could add on packs of of annuals that are each pack has fifty plants. How big are are these plants when they arrive to me? Uh, what kind of container are they in? How do you handle that? The welcome box, or I'll I'll start with sort of the two phases of shipments that we get. Everything is in a cardboard box. And we limit the packaging to the essence of the items inside. Um, and we've, you know, figured out what we needed, how it would all fit. And then, of course, you have, there are bottles for the organic amendments and or plastic bags for a different, like the crab shell that we offer as well. Um, so it's a mix of the essential items. And then when you receive the plants, again, it's another two boxes, actually, and all you receive are these um, cardboard inserts that kind of hold down the trays and then two trays of flats that you're receiving. And that's pretty much it. We're not, we're not trying to over package anything because, yes, we are very conscious about how much we're putting in that's excess. And we're really trying to limit and or use paper or cardboard uh, to, I guess, stuff the boxes with anything no plastic bubble wrap or styrofoam at all. Great. And I want to say, jump in and say that the plants come in these, um, they're called landscape plug size. Mm -hmm. So it's a five inch by two inch root ball and they're grown sustainably. And part of that sustainable mission is that the tray that they are grown in is recyclable. A lot of the landscape trays, um, in the industry are not recyclable plastic, which is a frustration. And it's still a frustration that we are using this recyclable plastic. I wish we could find something other than plastic to use. And that's one of the, our main, that that's one of our frustrations, but um, we take some comfort in knowing that the, these trays are recyclable. <laughs> this brings me to another one of my like crazinesses in the in the horticultural industry, and that is that we as consumers has been have been sold this concept that of a one gallon pot is going to do better and be fuller and be more you know colorful and flashy and perfect faster and longer than this two inch by two inch by five inch root plug. And it is not true. Right. And it's difficult to, uh, you know, how do you convince someone of something that they believe to be true? But we really, we really believe in these landscape plugs. We have seen them outperform a one gallon perennial in less than a year. Um, it, it only takes six weeks or less for a plug put in in the spring to gain the size of a one gallon perennial and then by the following year it will be larger than the one gallon perennial that you put in at the same time right and it its roots integrate with the native soil far more quickly it adapts to the current conditions of its place so much more effectively and it has so many less embodied costs in the way of fertilizer and transportation and soil and water and nameless other things. And they're so fun to plant because yeah. we send this auger drill bit in our welcome kit and you put it on your drill and drill down and just plop it in and you're done. It's And it's so fun. Yeah, you, you hit it. It's the magic of that growth. And I think that's also what sparks 
adults and children alike, which is that they see that transformation, which is the like that critical moment of, aha, this is the joy, this is the beauty. And, and that's, I think, where we're hoping more and more people see that um, in what we're doing. It's, it's hitting that magic moment in the very beginning, even though you're not getting a full fluffy garden <laughs> in, your, in, your, in front of your home at full scale off the bat, it's as soon as you plant it and then you wait every day, you just you know, kind of check it in or your daughter gives you an update of, oh, I, I, I watered the plants or, oh, I, I saw your plant, it's doing well, it didn't get eaten. You know, you get this daily update and then all of a sudden before you know it, it's like watching your, your child grow and you're like, how'd they get so big? And that's where it's the attachment grows. Yeah. It's attachment gardening. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of that. But we it is we oh, we're like raising it, it is raising a relationship. It is raising a friend and a community that goes with where we live and um and gardening is supposed to be a process. It's not supposed to be a rolled out commodity we purchase whole at at a location. And I I know that we are drawing to a close and I know there's so many things to talk about. One of them is this universal vein that you are hitting as, and I I don't mean to be sexist, but it is so frequently, it is still primarily the women who make the choice to raise children at home, to spend more time at home, to have to make a a choice at least for one or two or five years. You know, that's that's a generalization. I, I will admit it. How have you balanced the idea of making a living and making a life at offering this service out to the gardening world and still making sure you love it yourself. Uh, why don't I? Why don't I start with you, Meg? Uh, I don't want to give the impression that I have it figured out because <laughs> I don't. It's a struggle every day, and it's a joy to do this plant me a rainbow and put it out there and have these hopes and expectations for it. And it's something that I do while I'm with the kids and I can't imagine not doing it. I guess it does balance me because it keeps my mind in it. You know, Sandra and I work on it together every day. And so we're doing it. We're putting one foot in front of the other. So if you zoom out, I guess it's kind of balanced because we're we're at home and we're working, but mm-hmm. to leave your job in the city and move and start a new business with young kids, I, I don't know. It's not an ideal situation. <laughs> I don't know how, I, I wish I could be more optimistic. It's hard. It's a struggle. We're putting one foot in front of the other and that's what we're doing. And it's just like parenting. So we're trying to find something that is is going to work. And so we're optimistic about it. What about you, Sandra? Yeah, all that hesitation, that teetering, it's like we're balancing that teetering feeling. And every day it's about finding a way to flexible freedom. I don't even know if that's a term, but as we have these children that we're trying to raise and we want to be there for them, we're now trying to figure out how can we do the best of both of our worlds. And our one world is our family. And then the other world is our profession as landscape architects, designers, and plant lovers. And we're trying to find that balance. And we hope people 
also want to join us, working with us in terms of like to see why we feel and see this beauty all the time so that they can engage and just kind of help join the party because we're not trying to do this to, I guess, you know, become rich or millionaires. It's just, we want to find a a flexible way to contribute to the world and then also receive back our time that otherwise we wouldn't have. Thank you both very much for being guests on the program today. It has been a pleasure to speak with you both. And I, I love this bridge of community you are building across many differences. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Meg Herndon and Sandra Namchioffi are landscape architects, mothers, gardeners, and co-founders of Plant Me a Rainbow, a garden design and resource model based on their fervent belief in good design and sustainably sourced plants, tools, and advice. My greatest hope and objective with this compelling conversation is not in supporting this one however wonderful business. Rather, it is to raise the bar on what we as gardeners and garden consumers look for, expect, and insist on in this horticultural industry. How are our plants grown? What are all of the costs involved in the plants or seeds we buy? What are the tenets of well-designed gardens and from whose perspective? What is wasteful or even harmful? And how can we all creatively, intelligently rededicate ourselves to ensuring we're part of the solutions for watersheds, habitats, economies, communities, and families? We're all in this together. And the more we know, the more positive impacts we have. Join us again next week as the conversations and this multi-episode series finishes up when we speak with Mike Kingan, Alpine plant curator at the Denver Botanic Garden and member of the National Penstemon Society. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. On the Cultivating Place website this week, you can learn more about Meg Herndon and Sandra Nam Chaffee's own planted rainbows and outreach work with others, including lots of wonderful photographs. Check it out, cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the podcast as well. Being a subscriber means that you never miss an episode. But it's also a little different version of the program. Did you know that? In the podcast, we talk a little more deeply and directly together about this cultivating place in the garden calling. Subscribe today and stay up to speed with all things cultivating place. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. She ain't mine. She ain't yours. She is a